from deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm uh, apologizing in advance if you hear any uh, strange noises in the background on today's broadcast. It's just uh, Mark Twain turning over in his grave. The, um, the world seems riven by so many divisions, not just in the United States politically, but uh, in the world internationally. And so it's refreshing on this day, this week, to recognize uh, something that the United States and Russia agree on. And that is that neither we nor they recognize the International Criminal Court. So when that court accused Russia of war crimes this week for uh, its abduction of about 16,000 Ukrainian children, taking them across the border to Russia to raise them as good little Russians, the United States was in a position of saying, well, we don't recognize that court either. But still, it was a bad thing they did. Still. And um, this week, the Russian president, I know American politicians are always trying to prove that, uh, you know, they're just like the regular people and they have a sense of humor or anything. I think uh, Russian President Putin this week was trying to uh, show that he too is just a regular guy with a great sense of humor because as the International Criminal Court is uh, accusing him of war crimes for, as I say, um, bringing about 16,000 Ukrainian children to Russia to be raised as Russians, he uh, made a surprise trip to Crimea to visit a children's center. Mark Twain, as I say, is rolling over in his grave. Hello, welcome to the show.
From Santa Monica, California, home of the homeless, where we're celebrating the return of a uh, stranger over these last few months, a little thing called The Sun. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Oh, oh, it's not that warm. As a matter of fact, it's a crypto winter. Another crypto company. You've never heard of it. I've never heard of it, but it's in uh, Great Britain. It went belly up this week. That makes, uh, who's counting? But in new filings in the FTX bankruptcy case, the uh, fund's liquidators say they've uncovered $3.2 billion in payments and loans made to FTX founder Sam Bankster Fra- uh, Sam, Sam Bankman Fried, Fried and his inner circle. Well, if you can't loot your own crypto thing, what can you loot? The revelation, according to the British Tech Journal, the register can be found in the list of assets and liabilities and statements of financial affairs that FTX and its 101 affiliated debtors filed in court this week. It's uh, been under the control of liquidators since uh, November, and plenty of liquid is coming out. It summarized its findings in a press release did FTX, adding that the $3.2 billion figure doesn't include more than $240 million spent on luxury properties in the Bahamas. Any unlawful political or charitable donations, nor any, quote, substantial transfers to non-debtor subsidiaries in the Bahamas and other jurisdictions. That should cover it. All sounds kosher to me. Some of the properties purchased have been seized by FTX debtors or governments. Uh, the now imploded crypto exchange said it added it can't predict the timing nor total amount of eventual recoveries at this point. There's still a lot of FTX-linked assets out there that have yet to be discovered. Quote, ongoing efforts by the FTX debtors are expected to result in the further identification of assets, liabilities, and transfers, including intercompany claims among the FTX debtors and their subsidiaries. Of that $3.2 billion that was said to be distributed to uh, Mr. Bankman Fried's inner circle, $2.2 billion went directly to Sam himself, said uh, FTX's latest management. Nishad Singh, former co-lead engineer at FTX, made off with $587 million. That's comfy. And former Alameda Research Chief Executive Officer Carolyn Ellison and FTX Chief Technology Officer Zhao Wang got $6 million and $246 million, respectively. 
Alameda Research, in case you haven't been paying too much attention to this whole scam, was co-funded by Bankman Freed, operated as a cryptocurrency trading hedge fund that siphoned billions from FTX and its customers' deposits who thought they were buying crypto instead of trouble. That's according to uh, the SEC. Alameda plowed that cash into startups and other ventures. Other ventures. Singh, Ellison, and Wang have admitted criminal charges of fraud brought by the feds. Sam Trabuco, former CEO of Alameda, who left the company August last year, hasn't been charged as part of the bailout. Sorry, fallout is said by the liquidators to have exited with 25 million. Chump change. Ryan Salame, former co-CEO of, XT, of FTX, too many initials, too many initials, was enriched by 87 million. Salame has also not been charged. Reportedly, he was a whistleblower who tipped off Bahamian officials to financial malfeasance at FTX, I guess under the misapprehension that, that, that Bahamian officials cared. And the world's largest cryptocurrency exchange has gotten smaller. This also according to the register. Binance will suspend deposits and withdrawals. No, you can't take it out. No, we won't take it. In pounds for customers in the UK. That's a response to a decision by the payment processor working for Binance. PaySafe which says it is terminating its embedded wallet solution for customers. Nice use of the English language there. And working with Binance to terminate the pair's UK agreement in an orderly and fair process. Now they start with the orderly and fair. Quote, We've concluded that the UK regulatory environment in relation to crypto is too challenging to offer this service at this time. And so this is a prudent decision on our part taken in an abundance of caution. Unquote. Pay safe. Binance halted deposits and withdrawals for new customers in the UK this past Monday. All customers will be unable to deposit or withdraw their crypto in pounds starting in May. Both PaySafe and Binance said the portion of customers using PaySafe to perform fiat deposits and withdrawals in the UK, that is to say, depositing or withdrawing real money, like pounds, uh, the uh, proportion of customers using PaySafe to do that in the UK is small. It says Binance, it's less than 1% of users. They don't want to dirty their hands with real currency, do they? Quote, we know that these services are valued by our users and our team is working hard to find an alternative solution for them. We will share updates on this as and when we are able. Unquote, a Binance spokesperson. They both noted other forms of deposits for UK customers are and will remain available. This isn't the first time Binance has been in trouble with governments, nor the first time it's been banned from taking deposits in local currencies. In February this year, Binance suspended bank transfers in US dollars. They don't need our stinking dollars. It didn't provide a reason for the move, but it could be due to U.S. regulators' long-running investigation of the enterprise. 
Department of uh, Justice has been investigating Binance since 2021 on charges of money laundering and sanctions violations. Binance has continued to offer U.S. dollar transfers and legally able to do so because the pair are separate companies. Binance.us was founded in 2019 when regulators kicked Binance.com out of the U.S. And it gets even weirder. The uh, Binance subsidiary in the U.K. never even got off the ground. The U.K.'s Financial Conduct Authority banned Binance Markets Limited from doing any regulated activity in the U.K., without prior consent. Binance.com, which is unavailable in the U.S., is the entity through which Binance has been doing business in the U.K. since its local arm was shut. It's really painful when you shut your local arm. Governments in Japan, Germany, Thailand, Canada, and elsewhere have also investigated and or cracked down on Binance's operations within their borders. As of December... Justice Department prosecutors here in the U.S. were reportedly split on whether to prosecute Binance. Last month, Binance's chief strategy officer told the Wall Street Journal Binance was expecting penalties and fines to come out of the investigation. The DOJ's digging will likely end in a fine. Could be more. We just don't know. That's for regulators to decide, he told the Wall Street Journal. You want to get out on the ground floor before that collapses during a crypto winter. And now. News of the godly. A lot of it this week. A lot of godliness going around. The Diocese of Santa Rosa in California has filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy after being deluged in hundreds of lawsuits over child sexual abuse. This is from the Bay Area branch of CBS. Quote, this decision was made necessary due to the number of child sexual abuse lawsuits filed against the diocese over the course of the past three years, said Bishop Robert Vasa in a press release. According to the report, the diocese faces more than 200 suits as a result of a law passed by California legislators Four years ago, it established a three-year period in which the statute of limitation on childhood sexual abuse cases was suspended, and people whose abuse would otherwise have been too long ago to sue could now file claims. These cases are too numerous to settle individually, and so they have accumulated until the closing of the three-year window, said Vasa, who noted the diocese has already paid out $35 million in settlements, for sexual abuse cases that were within the statute of limitations. A bankruptcy allows the diocese to deal with all these issues collectively rather than one at a time. The move was met with outrage from attorneys representing the victims who accused the diocese of abusing bankruptcy law to avoid paying the full damages for which they're liable. Quote, this is a pattern already revealed in San Diego and other states where the statute of limitations was previously opened, said lawyer Jeff Anderson, who represents 78 of the victims. He says the diocese is also facing a lawsuit alleging it improperly transferred its assets to shield them from legal proceedings. 
So it's a smart little diocese. Also in Northern California, the Diocese of Oakland, it's considering doing the same thing, filing for bankruptcy due to claims of child sexual abuse by priests. The church announced that in a letter this week, and it was reported by ABC TV in Northern California. According to the letter addressed to parishioners and friends, the diocese is, uh, in Oakland is facing approximately 330 lawsuits. Quote, as the court continues to process the suits, the total magnitude will become clearer, said the Bishop of Oakland, Michael Barber. However, it's increasingly evident we face a monumental challenge. Now he realizes that. Quote, I have therefore been working with our College of Counselors, our Diocesan Finance Council, and our staff and advisors to discern the best way to support compassionate and equitable compensation for survivors and ensure the continuation of vibrant, Christ-centered parishes to serve our faithful. And it's doing what they're doing over in Santa Rosa. He says it will provide a way to support all survivors in their journey toward healing in an equitable and comprehensive way. Yes, bankruptcy is a journey when you're running a diocese. He says it will also allow the diocese to reorganize our financial affairs so we may continue to fulfill the sacred mission entrusted us by Christ and the church. Says uh, Mike Reck, with the same law firm quoted in the story about Santa Rosa, quote, it's not shocking to see a diocese want to avoid those trials. They'd like to avoid the bishops and the vicars having to testify and having to disclose to the public the details of what they knew and when they knew it. Unquote Reck, the Oakland Diocese didn't return requests for comment. On its website, it claims it has limited cash and financial resources to deal with all the complaints, even if they sell off assets. You don't want the church to be selling off assets. Meanwhile, in Canada, an apology from the University of King's College for the abuse endured by its students at the hands... Oh, yeah, I have to preface this with a warning. The name of the accused in this story may generate fits of laughter, so be prepared. An apology from the University of King's College in Halifax for the abuse endured by its students at the hands of the a, a former professor there is a watershed moment for other survivors, said a lawyer. The uh, former professor is Wayne Hankey. I said Hankey. Liam O'Reilly filed a civil suit last March on behalf of a man who says Hankey sexually assaulted him in the late 1970s. That's the most painful place to be assaulted. When he was 14, the apology from King's College President William Leahy shows others who may have been abused by Hankey that they're not alone. You have a platform for all the survivors to now come forward and not be concerned that people are going to say, well, that's not true or that didn't happen. Liam O'Reilly said, he's the one who filed the lawsuit, our expectation is you're going to see even more come forward now. Leahy, head of the college, made his apology following the release of a report from a Toronto-based law, sorry, Toronto-based law firm it said the school failed to address allegations of Hankey's abuse and instead Panky, uh, pr protected him. 
The report commissioned by the university compiled stories from interviews with more than 80 people who interacted with Hanke. He taught at the school between 74 and 2015 and was charged with sexual assault in 2021. He died a little more than a year ago at the age of 77 before his case came to trial. O'Reilly said the apology expressed the sentiments that those abused by Hanke wanted to hear. The man O'Reilly represents says Hanke fed the man alcohol and sexually assaulted him over the course of three days in the late 70s at the President's Lodge on the campus of Dalhousie University. The man was 14 at the time, and he was there because he'd been introduced to Hanke as a devout, Ang a devout Anglican with a keen, keen interest in becoming a minister. Hanke was an Anglican priest until he was removed from the priesthood in 1991. The lawsuit says the boy was led to believe that Hanke's assaults were part of his admission to the school and a prerequisite to becoming a minister. Imagine believing that. And the Jesuits of Canada has released a list of 27 priests and brothers it says were credibly accused of sexually abusing minors over the past six decades, according to CBC. Over the past three or four more, de more decades, revelations of grievous abuse by clergy dating back many generations have come to light. The church has been slow to respond, says Father Eric Oland, leader of the Jesus, Je Jesuits of Canada. He says that in a letter to the public posted on the Jesuits' website. We've met with survivors, listened to their stories, and read the reports of their experiences. We have felt shame and become convinced that the only path forward is one of truth-telling, healing, and reconciliation. Oh, and here's another journey. In an emailed response to a request for comment, a spokesperson for the Jesuits of Canada said, quote, We do not regard the release of this list as an end, but a beginning of our journey with survivors. End quote. News of the Journeying Godly. Copyrighted feature this broadcast and now. Ladies and gentlemen, we are proud to present Let Us Try a ballad of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Let us try to stem the tide To beautify our countryside We offer you our hand Let us try We can help to make things To save our precious land, let us try to help you clean up all our waters. Cause to try is to succeed. Yes, that's real. It's not me, that's them. Here's some news of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency designated the Columbia River, Columbia River's Bradford Island a Superfund site. 
one of the nation's top priorities for cleanup. Mid-March, just about a year ago, a year later, environmental agencies, advocates, and indigenous tribes say they are frustrated with the lack of urgency from the Army Corps to begin that process of cleanup. They're calling on the EPA to step in. In the 1930s, the Army Corps began dumping waste on Bradford Island as the agency built the Bonneville Dam. Well, you got to build, you got to dump. For four decades, the Corps continued to dump debris and electrical equipment that contained highly toxic chemicals like polychlorinate, polychlorinated biphenyls directly into the river, contaminating the island and surrounding waters. Those uh, chemicals, PCBs, do not break down easily, can build up in the tissues of fish. But there are no fish in river. They have been known to have harmful effects on human health. Both Oregon and Washington have issued health advisories warning people to not eat local fish near the island due to high levels of PCBs. According to the EPA, concentration levels of PCBs in mercury in resident fish within one mile of Bradford Island have been among the highest reported in the entire United States. During the 2000s, the Corps removed 32 tons of solid waste, including electrical equipment, from the uh, island. In 2007, the agency dredged up water and sediment and then filtered it to remove contamination. That was the last time the Corps performed any cleanup at the site. That led environmental and health groups, along with tribes, lawmakers, and state agencies to work together for more than three years toward getting the place declared a Superfund site. That requires the EPA to oversee and ensure the highest levels of cleanup standards are applied. It also creates a timeline for when the Corps needs to get various parts of the cleanup finished. You know, like a schedule. That is still under negotiation, but many who want to see Bradford Island restored are frustrated with the drawn-out process. Some are calling in the EPA to hold the Corps accountable now and take over cleanup responsibilities. Well, I'd suggest the latter, because the former is going to get you in just more stuff. The area is important to many tribes, in the region, including the Yakima Nation. The Yakima people inhabited the area and harvested salmon and other fish there since, according to this story, in, from Oregon Public Broadcasting, time immemorial. The tribe has several fishing platforms on the river which it can't use because of health advisories against eating the fish. A um, specialist in fisheries issues for Yakima Nation says she's upset the Corps not involving the tribe in government decisions is only allowing them to provide input through public meetings. All the Corps is doing is protecting their ability to have ultimate control, be the sole decision maker, and do the cleanup however they believe is appropriate without any input from anyone else, she says. At this point, I don't see any daylight in them changing their ways, unquote. She gets it. She says the Yakima Nation has explained to the Corps on several occasions their right as a sovereign nation to oversee the area and how it should be cleaned. I'm extraordinarily frustrated. A scientist who works with the Corps, lucky him, says, quote, the Corps has the willingness and is very much looking forward to the cleanup. Unquote. A, uh, 
Official spokesman for the Corps, John Morgan, said the agency understands the frustration. We all want the same thing. He said it's not the lack of urgency. It's, dil it's diligence in making sure that we're doing what's right. Unquote. The spokesperson for the Army Corps of Engineers. The EPA didn't answer questions on whether it would intervene in the process. In a written statement, the agency says it will continue to work with the Army Corps on an agreement, noting it's critical the agreement honors federal treaty responsibilities. That means get the Indians to have a seat at the table. Native Americans, excuse me. And, yes, I'm burying the lead because this next story is, uh, well... I'll let it speak for itself. Dateline, New Orleans. The Army Corps of Engineers has discovered severe corrosion to a pump at the end of one of the three so-called outfault canals in New Orleans and less corrosion to another at another canal. There are three, as I say. Their purpose is to take rainwater that has fallen on New Orleans and has been gathered by um, still an exemplary pumping system and let that water go into Lake Pontchartrain having been gathered off the streets of New Orleans. The most recent redo of the national system to protect New Orleans built by the Army Corps over, uh, well, since Katrina cost $14 billion, supposed to last 50 years. The pumps in question have a supposed lifetime of 35 years. They're corroded already. Corps officials uh, acknowledged that corrosion this week, saying they're going to repair the corrosion by June 1st, which is the beginning of uh, hurricane season. The Corps, says uh, New, Orleans, New Orleans advocate, is also planning a deeper look at the city's combined permanent canal closure and pump stations to determine whether there are design flaws only five years after completion. You may recall on this program and in a feature-length documentary made by your host, that a whistleblower inside the Corps told us that as early as 2010. The corrosion of the London Avenue pump was discovered last month after water was removed from the bay in which it was built and its outer covering was removed, exposing the water. It overheated last May and was taken out of service after being detected during regular maintenance by staff of the Southeast Louisiana Fraud Protection Authority East, which has been given the job of operating the pumps that the Corps built. Corps spokesperson said more than enough pumping capacity remained to remove water into Lake Pontchartrain in the event of a hurricane last year. But at the time, officials thought there might be other reasons for the pump overheating including the possibility that its equipment became misaligned because the heavy pump station structure was sinking. 
When the pump's covering was removed in mid-February, inspectors found that the severity of corrosion only five years after going into service was complete, well beyond what was expected during its entire 35-year service life, said the senior project manager for the three lakefront pump stations. It'll cost uh, several hundred thousand dollars to repair the pump, most severely corroded pump. It'll be um, paid for by the feds using money remaining from funds set aside for construction of the three pump stations. Oh, they didn't use all the money to build the pump stations. Maybe they should have. The damage was also enough to trigger an inspection of all 16 pumps at the three stations designed to move water from the city side of their respective canals into the lake, the adjoining lake, when the gates are closed in advance of a hurricane to protect the canals from getting storm surge. The Corps has also begun with terms a long-term repairs strategy. It's aimed at a more comprehensive review of whether the design of the pumps was deficient including a review of the ability of the metals used in their construction to withstand corrosion throughout their 35-year design life. Maybe they should have done that before installing them. It's the Corps of Engineers, isn't it? The contract for that review has not been finalized. It's expected to take at least two years. The uh, Corps is also evaluating alternatives for removing water from the canals. These, again, are canals into which rainwater is dumped when the city is dewatered, to use a Corps of Engineers term, uh, in the event that the pump capacity drops below what is needed during hurricanes. You can't have more than eight feet above sea level of water level in the canals because their walls canals, flood walls, which did not function properly during Katrina because of design flaws, they've never been fixed. So more than eight feet in the canals would topple the canals, walls, and reflood New Orleans. In uh, the long term, says a core spokesperson, Ricky Boyette, we're leveraging the entire core to ensure we can bring these pumps to their specified design life, unquote. Well, we're five years in and failure is starting and their life is 35 years. You better hurry. Well, we'll let them try because apparently... We can't do anything else. Air Force One had a heck of a view. Air Force One had a heck of a view. Looking down on the patchwork. Of the blue top blues I went and walked into the water Spark a leak in 
Well, now some news of our friend, the Adam. He's making trouble for people down under, or vice versa. Western Australia's premier says a site in outback South Australia is a logical location to host high-level radioactive waste. Where's that waste going to come from? Australia's future submarines. This is from uh, ABC News. The Australian version. As part of a deal announced this week between Australia, the U.S., and the U.K., the Australian government has promised to dispose of nuclear waste required for the submarines at a new facility on land owned by the Australian Defense Department, the location of which has not yet been chosen. Isn't that wild? They haven't chosen a place to dump the waste yet? The initial submarines will be imported from overseas, those built in Australia's later on, 
will be made in South Australia and docked in Western Australia. Victorian Premier David Andrews suggested those states could host the waste they produce. I think the waste can go where all the jobs are going. I don't think that's unreasonable, is it? He said with a shrug. The uh, Premier of Western Australia made it clear this week that nuclear waste from those submarines was not welcome in his state. He answered with a firm no when asked if he would be okay with the Department of Defense selecting a site in Western Australia to dispose of spent submarine nuclear reactors. He said South Australia could take on the nuclear waste facility. The Australia Radioactive Waste Agency will review possible locations for the new dump. The uh, South Australian Premier says decisions about the location should be led to science, led by science. It's all very helpful for other premiers to start allocating future waste, which is some decades in the future, she said. Let's let science lead the way and not listen to political considerations, particularly from state leaders trying to move nuclear waste that doesn't yet exist across the border, unquote. The defense minister said the process for selecting a nuclear waste site would be announced within 12 months. Asked whether the government had any particular state in mind for the site, the deputy prime minister said, it's too early for that. Farmland near Kimba, on South Australia's Fire, I'm oh, sorry, Eyre Peninsula, has been chosen to host Australia's low to intermediate level nuclear waste. It has been ruled out from being used for the submarine waste. Some in the Kimba area don't necessarily take the government at its word. Imagine that. Clean, cheap, safe, too safe to meet her, our friend the Atom. And now, the apologies of the week. So sorry. The National Union of Students, a body representing thousands of students in the UK, this week apologized for discriminating against Jewish students. Quote, we really want to open the conference today with a moment of accountability for NUS and a moment of humanity towards our Jewish friends and neighbors, said Chloe Field, the NUS president for higher education. On behalf of NUS today in the past, I'm genuinely truly sorry that it has taken us so long to address anti-Semitism head on. Unquote. Field explained that NUS had let down Jewish students and pledged to ensure they never again fight anti-Semitism alone. Quote, so let us say this to anyone in doubt. Anti-Semitism is real, and it is happening in politics today. Anti-Semitism is an attack not just on Jewish people, but on all of us and the shared values we hold. Unquote. NUS apology follows years of accusations from Jewish groups that anti-Semitism is prevalent throughout the National Union of Students organizing structure. It's structural anti-Semitism. All right then. Jeopardy executive producer Michael Davies 
has apologized after the show slipped up at the start of a recent episode and spilled the final score before the game kicked off. It's according to HuffPost, which covers such things now, I guess. The blunder, which occurred in an episode that aired on March 9th, featured a shot of the contestants' scores after host Mayim Bialik, she's a neuroscientist, you know, wished them good luck ahead of the first of a two-part final in the high school reunion tournament. The scores reveal that contestant Jackson James won the game, although he wasn't the eventual winner. Davies, during Monday's episode of the Inside Jeopardy podcast, said the show, quote, totally blew it, unquote, from the start of the episode, and it was a result of a series of errors. Quoted somehow remarkable, they all happened, starting with the decision to redo the monologue, which was probably the right decision, Davies said. He continued, although neither the producer and I can remember exactly what was wrong with the monologue, why we decided to redo it, but we do occasionally pick up monologues for some reason. Sometimes there's a fact that's incorrect. Sometimes there's just a performance issue. So we redo it at the end of the show. He added, it should be and is supposed to be standard procedure for the show to take scores that appear on the podiums back to these original levels, in these cases of redoing the opening. That, he said, didn't occur. This was then not caught in post-production, and it was not caught in the final quality control. There are so many elements that should check this. Unquote. Davies assured viewers that Jeopardy now has a new series of protocols to prevent the slip-up from happening in the future. It already happened in the past. He uh, says, and so we live and learn, and we apologize for anybody whose experience of this program was ruined. He added, the growth of the show's franchise could have played a factor. Quote, there's some pressure on the production. We're making more episodes. People are working more hours. And so that does lead to mistakes. But still no excuse for this. This was too basic. We're going to do everything that we can to make sure this doesn't happen again. Unquote. Yeah, let's go for new mistakes. Deadline New Orleans, there is a parade that occurs on the Saturday before Fat Tuesday called the Crew of Tux. You know, all parades in New Orleans throw things to uh, the, the uh, crowd. The Crew of Tux, last I looked, threw rolls of toilet paper. True story. They've issued a formal apology to the mayor of New Orleans, Latoya Cantrell, thinks she's still mayor, for an incident involving a member on a float. The letter says, Crew of Talks prohibits any and all forms of obscene, offensive, vulgar, or political communication of any form, including the offensive, obscene finger gesture. The crew investigated and identified the offending individuals and immediately terminated their membership in tux, unquote. Mayor Cantrell had said she was flipped the bird by a member on a float during that parade. In a pre press conference earlier this month, Cantrell explained the incident where she was caught on video making a, gest a gesture with her middle finger. It was supposedly in response to that crew member. The crew addressed the gesture the mayor made, saying they believe her response was appropriate in the spirit of Mardi Gras. On behalf of the crew, we apologize for the inappropriate act 
of one of our 2,500 members. Unquote. The statement by a big crew. Dayline Portland, Oregon. The Portland Art Museum has apologized following an incident in which an indigenous guest was told to remove her traditional woven baby carrier because it violated the museum's no-backpacks policy. The museum currently has two exhibits that feature indigenous and Native American art. In a Facebook post, the mother said she was viewing the Dakota modern exhibits when she was asked to remove her carrier. Quote, the Portland Art Museum where being indigenous is cool as long as you're part of the exhibit and not actually practicing your culture, she said in her post, which concludes a photo of her and the baby smiling. A staff member told her the baby basket was a threat to the art and to the baby, but it was a cool item. The employee added that backpacks weren't allowed according to policy. Kill the Indian, save the man was also a policy, I point out. The post from the Native American continues. You need to cool down. Take a deep breath. Retorts the lady, racism is alive and well in these walls, unquote. The museum's bag policy states that no bags greater than 14, sorry, 11 by 17 by 6 inches should be carried into the museum, and visitors aren't permitted to carry anything on their backs. Not even shirts? The museum issued a statement via social media saying it would update its visitor policy on baby carriers in the future to prevent similar events from occurring in that future. Quote, we deeply apologize for causing harm in this interaction. The museum said we are devastated that the family had a negative experience at the museum, especially in an exhibition celebrating Native American art. We want everyone to feel welcome here. Museum added that incident isn't a reflection of the museum's values, and it had reached out to the family in question. World-leading forklift manufacturer Toyota Industries Corporation has been found to have fabricated results of parts testing, forcing some forklift shipments to be halted. This according to the Japanese newspaper, the Asahi Shimbun, the fabrication marks the second member of the Toyota Motor Group to be involved in a data reporting scandal in the last year. Officials of Toyota Industries admitted on March 17th that results of emission tests on gasoline and diesel engines had been falsified. The company has halted domestic shipments of three models of forklifts that use the engines in question. At a news conference, company president Akira Omishi, sorry, Onishi, apologized and said the cause of falsification was insufficient knowledge and experience about legal regulations. They didn't know you don't lie. All right, read the manual again. And a school superintendent in Michigan, involved in a book banning controversy, admitted to his school's community that he took it upon himself to remove several books, which he referred to as R-rated, from a high school library to avoid conflict with angry conservative parents who had expressed their discomfort with their children being exposed to topics, including ones related to the LGBTQ plus community. 
the administrator emailed parents, admitting, after previously denying, that he unilaterally removed six books from school library shelves. He now admits he was wrong for doing so. Ernest, sorry, Forest Hills School Superintendent Dan Bame apologized to district staff in a letter he sent this week. He tried to explain the reasoning behind single-handedly intervening and taking reading materials off library shelves. After, quote, two years of uh, contentious board meetings and angry parents reading graphic excerpts from library books and accusing schools of indoctrination, unquote, he said he tried to turn down the temperature around books, so he had some removed. I inadvertently jumped at the realization that some of these books were rarely checked out, and I thought that weeding them was acceptable. This was wrong. I take full responsibility for this mistake. I should have brought any questions about books to our very capable professionals who care for our media centers or one of our teachers who have formal expertise in this area. Unquote. The National Coalition Against Censorship ex- accused the superintendent last month of secretly removing books which violated district procedures. Bame also acknowledged that many targeted books are specific to the LGBTQ plus community. He concluded we have to treat all people with kindness, respect, and love. Unquote. And burn their books. No, he didn't say that. The Apologies of the Week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Ladies and gentlemen, that's going to conclude this week's edition of the show. Back, yeah, next week. That sounds good. Same time on these radio stations. Time of your choice on the audio device of your choice. Seems fair. And it would be just like Donald Trump being invited tomorrow. Throwing off the whole plan. 
If you'd agree to join with me then, would you already? Thank you very much. Uh-huh. Tip of the show, chapeau. The San Diego desk to Pam Halstead and to Thomas Walsh at WWNO in New Orleans. The email address for this program? Yes, there still is one. Your chance to get Cars I Talk sh- uh, t-shirts. Well, there still are some. And um, the playlist of the music you hear here, all at harryshare.com, along with a lot of other stuff to read, to watch, to detest. It's all up to you. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from the home of the homeless, 